The love of God is something that most of us are not really well acquainted with. We say that we are. All of us have some sense of the fact that God loves us. If he didn't, you'd be uh, ashes by now. Amen? But really, we don't understand the depth of it. And actually, it's hard to teach on the love of God because people think, I already know this, and yet we don't know it. Because if we knew it, there would be different results in our life. The Word of God teaches that the love of God, a revelation of the, of the love of God, would just totally revolutionize you. And basically, the people that I deal with and that come to me for um, problems, if they just had a revelation of how much God loves them, it would solve their problems. It really would. And so I know that there needs to be more of a revelation of it. And so it's a little hard to get this across to people that think they already know it. So last night we started talking about what I call spiritual dyslexia. We studied out of 1 John chapter 4, and we read a number of passages of Scripture. Uh, what d dyslexia is is where you see things backwards. People, especially with reading disorders, see, like for instance, the word God, G-O-D. People that have dyslexia see it. Uh, did I say that right? God, G-O-D. <laughs> the people that have dyslexia see it D-O-G. Boy, it still sounds like I said that wrong. But anyway, there's a difference between seeing it G-O-D, God, and D-O-G, uh, dog. Boy, I tell you, for some reason that's catchy. And so people with dyslexia see things backwards. Well, in the spiritual realm, people have seen things about the love of God. We say that, yes, God loves us, but then we think that He loves us so much that God's liable to put a cancer in our life to teach us something. You know, this doesn't compute. Actually, a tremendous amount of our doctrine would fall by the wayside if we really had a revelation of God's kind of love. You know, I had an instance one time where... Um, man came to one of my services and brought his daughter with him and she was um, about 12 years old and she was, I don't know exactly what was wrong with her, but she had a brain disorder or something. Her whole body was paralyzed. She, ha she had no bodily function. She had no mental function. She was just a vegetable. And um, they still had her in diapers at 12 years old and she, she just was totally out of it. And in my meeting, I said something about that it's always God's will to heal, always, and that it's never God's will for a person to be sick. And this guy got mad and left. And so the people that brought him to the meeting said, well, why don't you wait until after the meeting and at least ask this guy? Maybe you misunderstood what he said or something. So he hung around. After the meeting, I went back and talked to him, and we were talking over his daughter. She was sitting there in this wheelchair. And I started telling him it was God's will to heal his daughter. And he started telling me it was God's will that she be that way. God made her that way. And I understand why people believe that, because it's a defense mechanism. How do you cope with your daughter being in a situation like that? This was a man that loved his daughter. And, uh, you know, what do you, what do you do? It's the same question that was uh, raised in the ninth chapter of the book of John when they saw this man who was born blind sitting at the gate of the temple. And they said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? People always want to know, whose fault is it? Why do these things happen? And Jesus said it wasn't his fault or his parents' fault. You know, one of the problems asking questions is that lots of times we ask the wrong question. <laughs> Amen? We say, was it his parents or was it his fault that he was born this way? We ought to sometimes give, instead of just A, his fault, B, his parents' fault, we ought to put C, none of the above and give God an opportunity to answer outside our little narrow questions. The Lord said it wasn't either one of them. 
Now that doesn't mean that nobody was at fault. I believe that it was sin in general. Sin has corrupted the world. And there's things that happen. For instance, people uh, that are born with deformities and things like that, it's not necessarily God that did this. It's not the devil that did it. The devil can do it. It can be a sin. Uh, the Lord told some people, He said, Go and sin no more, lest the worst thing has come upon you. The Lord did link some sicknesses and diseases directly to sin. But in a huge amount of cases, it's just the de- it's just natural stuff. If your car breaks, failed, it's not always the devil that makes them fail. Sometimes physical things, man-made, wear out, and a person could have a wreck, and you could get an arm cut off, and it wasn't the devil that did it. It's just human things, but it's all a result of sin. It's not God's will. If we were still living under the perfect plan that God had made, things like that wouldn't be happening. So anyway, see, here this man was trying to adjust to his situation. He couldn't say that it was his fault. He certainly couldn't believe that it was a baby's fault that didn't do anything right or wrong to be born that way. And so the only other option to him is to blame God. And it was a defense mechanism to believe that God willed it to be this way. It was not God's will that his daughter be born that way. So I wasn't insensitive to what he was saying, but I was trying to share the word with him. And for every scripture I'd share about that, you know, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth thee any man. Out of James chapter 1, verse 12. Well, every time I'd share a scripture, he'd share a scripture. And in my estimation, he was misinterpreting it, misquoting it. But in his estimation, I was misquoting it. So we weren't getting anywhere. We were just button heads. And he was already pretty hot at me. And it, and it was getting nowhere. And I just knew that I had to penetrate this guy somehow. And so finally, I just looked at him. Figured I didn't have anything to lose. I looked at him and I said, what kind of sorry father are you anyway that wants your daughter to be sick and in a wheelchair and doesn't care if she's ever normal and if she ever plays? And man, I just started pouring it on him. And this guy got really ticked at me. (laughs) Really ticked. And I mean, he was ready to punch my lights out. And he started saying, he says, how dare you say that? He says, I love my daughter. I'd do anything for my daughter. He says, if it was within my power, I'd spend any money. I would borrow any amount of money. If I could, I'd take her place. I'd be like her so that she could be like me. And he was insulted because it was to say that, you know, there was something that could be done and he wasn't doing it. It was an insult to his love. And then I turned around and I said, and you think God, who has all power, loves your daughter less than you do? Now, see, he could argue doctrine with me. But when I brought it down to a relationship of love, what was he going to say? He, a human being who is faulted and frail and wrong in his love, it wasn't perfect, was going to accuse God, who the Bible says is love, and who his love is infinitely greater than that father could ever feel, and say that God Almighty is sitting back with his arms folded saying, I have a purpose in her being a vegetable. It doesn't compute. No father can relate to that. Only a perverted religion could ever make a person believe that it's God's will to make people be sick and kill people with sickness and disease and born with birth defects. Only religion could deceive a person into believing that junk. Thank you for that thunderous silence. That's the truth. That stuff is straight from hell. It really is. That is not God's will. God is not the one that's causing the tragedy in your life. And so, see, we could have argued doctrine all night, but when we get down to love, how can a person who is love, the Bible says God is love, 1 John 4, 8, how can God, who is love, just turn a a cold shoulder, turn the other way, and let us suffer and go through the things that we do? If you really understood, if you had an experiential knowledge 
of God's love, you would not fall for lies like that. Religion would not be able to deceive you. It doesn't matter how many negative things come in your life. Nobody could ever convince you that a God who is love, that you've experienced his love, would have willed for the tragedy and the problems in your life. Satan is the author of those things, or in a lot of cases, it's just us. In a lot of cases, the devil's been on vacation because you're doing an excellent job of ruining your life on your own. You can't even blame it on the devil. I mean, the devil taught you just a few things and you're handling it from here. You are making a royal mess of your life. But it is not God that's messed up your life. There are people today that are bitter and upset. God, why have you let this happen to me? God is not the one that let your life get in a mess. Jeremiah 29 verse 11 says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of good and not of evil, to give you hope and an expected end. God has thoughts of good towards you. God has a plan for you, every one of you, from before the foundation of the earth. God have a, had a perfect plan for you. You may never realize that plan, but that has nothing to do with God's faithfulness. God has a plan, but it is totally up to you to cooperate. Or you can go your own way and ruin your own life. And God loves you so much, He will not force you. God doesn't have robots. God doesn't make us conform to His will. He offers it to us, but that's where, see, our faith and holiness and seeking the Lord comes in. You have to cooperate. You have to resist the devil. You have to pursue and sometimes fight to receive what God desires for you to have. It doesn't just come to pass automatically. So see, we were talking about the love of God, and I was showing how that most of us have uh, this dyslexic condition to where we see things backwards. And I gave examples specifically. I'm going to sum this up, but most of them we're talking about, uh, you know, if you love me, keep my commandments. And people see a scripture like that, and they say, well, man, I certainly want to love God, and so the thing I need to do is keep his commandments. Keeping commandments will make me love God. No, the Scripture is saying exactly the opposite of that. The Scripture is saying that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. It's just automatic. I can tell some of you didn't get that. We have such a performance-based mentality. Most of us are doing things to get God to love us instead of understanding and just receiving love as a gift. You can't do anything to earn love. If it's earned, it's not love. It's not grace. It's not free. You know, it's just like my tapes. I give my tapes away, and every once in a while I run across people who say, nobody's going to give me anything. I pay my way. I had a woman one time write in and get three tapes, and she says, please bill me for these tapes. So we sent her the three tapes. And then she wrote in a hostile letter, and she says, I told you I pay my way. You bill me for these tapes, and she ordered three more tapes. She says, it's a total of six tapes, and you send me a bill for these tapes. So we sent her three more tapes and didn't send her any bill. And finally, she wrote in, and she says, nobody ever pays my way. I'm going to pay my way, and you can't give me something. says, I'm ordering three more tapes, and if you don't bill me for these, I'll never get anything from you again. And anyway, I sent her three more tapes, and I sent her a personal letter, and I said, Lady, you cannot buy my tapes. The only way you can get my tapes are to get them free. If you want to share an offering, I'll receive an offering, but it is not in payment for my tapes. My tapes are worth more than you got. <laughs> Amen. And I don't know if that lady ever wrote back in. I don't remember to tell you the truth. But you know what? I've run across people that they just aren't going to receive anything free. Bless God, I'm going to pay my way. Well, there's some people that have that attitude towards God. Have you ever taken somebody out to eat 
and you say, here, I'm going to get this bill. Oh, no, let me get this bill. No, I'm going to get this bill. And you argue over it, and finally, when you finally get it, well, next time it's my turn. There's some people that just don't know how to receive. But you know, most of us don't know how to receive unconditional love. We feel like we've got to do something to earn it, to pay for it. And so we have turned all of these scriptures around that says, if you love me, then you will keep my word. Then you will do my commandments. And we say, well, boy, I want to love him and have him love me, so I'm going to keep the commandments and that'll make love come. No, keeping the commandments is a fruit, not a root of salvation. Keeping the commandments is a byproduct of already knowing God. And yet most people are thinking, if I just do the right things, then I'll eventually be right. No, you got to be right and then you'll do right. Amen. As you are in your heart, that's the way that you are. And if you would just learn to receive the love of God as a free gift, you would find out that you would serve God better accidentally than you ever have on purpose before. You'd find out that there wouldn't be a struggle in the Christian life. You wouldn't have to force. If you're fighting against sin and saying, Oh God, please help me to resist this sin. The problem is you don't love God and you don't have the love, the revelation of God's love the way you should. Because once God's love becomes a revelation to you, it'll make lust for other things just die. The reason you're lusting for other things is because you've never really tasted and seen how good God is. Once you understand how good God is, why would you ever turn from God to serve the devil? The devil is a jerk. He's killing you. He's coming to steal and kill and destroy. And the only reason we serve the devil so well is because you've never really experienced the love of God in the depth that you should. And so what you should do is instead of feeling guilty and condemned over all these rotten things, is every time you see sin, failure in your life, lust for other things, it ought to drive you back to your knees to say, Father, somehow or another I don't understand how much you love me. Somehow or another, I'm not walking in the love of God. If I was, I wouldn't be lusting like this. My flesh is not being satisfied from you, and so it's having to be satisfied some other way. I'm turning to dope or to drugs or to whatever. All you got to do is get a person hooked into the love of God, and I guarantee you they will just instantly begin to start walking in a greater measure of purity. And somebody says, well, I believe they'll still sin. Well, sure they will. All of us will still sin. Those of you that think you're so holy, you still sin too. <laughs> All of us sin comes short of the glory of God. But I guarantee you, you will manifest a greater degree of holiness motivated by love than you will motivated, motivated by fear. Fear will make you find out where the line is. Here's the line. Over there's sin. Over here's okay. And fear will make you get as close to that line as you can. Man, you'll be walking this line like this and say, I'm not in sin yet. It isn't sin until I get totally drunk. Taking a drink isn't wrong. Every once in a while, just getting drunk's wrong. So you'll walk over there. And it's not totally wrong to go to these movies. I'm an adult. I can handle it. And you'll get just as close as you can. And you'll just allow yourself to be tempted. And eventually you fall. A person who's motivated by love will be a person that says, Man, if that's where the line is, I'm going to get way over here. I'm going to get so far away that if I stumble and fall, I still won't cross that line. Amen. Praise God. Love will cause you to live a holier life. Let's look back in 1 John chapter 2. And let me continue tonight talking about God's kind of love. I used some of these verses last night that I want to continue to read. 1 John chapter 2, in verse 1, he says, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Boy, this is awesome. 
And hereby we do know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. Well, doesn't that verse say say that keeping His commandments will cause us to know Him? No, it's saying that if we know Him, we'll keep His commandments. And that's how you can tell if you really know Him. Because if you really know Him, you'll live holy. If you aren't living holy, you don't really know Him. So what's the answer? Live holier? No, know Him better. And that'll solve the problem. Boy, it's just simple. Verse 4, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Well, none of us want to be a liar. We all want the truth in us, so what do we do? Let's keep his commandments more? No, know him more. And then the results, the visible results that people can see is that you'll keep the commandments more. But see, God looks beyond your actions. God looks at your heart. And God, you know, let me just say something here, that you can live a holy life and not love God. The scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day proved it. They were holier than any of us ever thought about being. The scribes and the Pharisees paid tithes of mint and anise and cumin. Did you know that they could have joined this church without even a character reference? Because, man, they paid tithes on everything, down to the spices in their garden. They prayed three times a day. This prayer movement, man, praying an hour a day, the scribes and Pharisees had them beat by a long shot at least three hours of organized official prayer a day, plus all of the other things they did. They were holy, 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 holy. They were living a holy life, and they're the only ones Jesus ever rebuked. He never rebuked a prostitute, never rebuked a publican, never rebuked all of the liars and the thieves. The only person he ever rebuked were the religious people who were hypocrites trusting in their goodness. true. You can't find an example of him rebuking somebody in sin because he came to show those people love. The only people that he couldn't tolerate were people that trusted themselves and thought they were good enough for salvation. That's the only thing that really upset the Lord. It's the only sin he can't tolerate is a sin of self-righteousness. Amen. That's a great place to say amen. So you can live holy and not love God, but you cannot love God and not live holy. That's an awesome statement. Now, does that mean that you'll never make a mistake? No, no, no. I'm not saying that you can't make a mistake. David is a great example of a person that made a serious mistake, but boy, when confronted with it, that man humbled himself. I mean, he humbled himself. You could see his heart. People who love God still make mistakes, but you take their life as an average, and I guarantee you they are going to be walking in a holiness that uh, they would never have operated in otherwise. It's possible to live holy and not love God, but it is not possible to love God and not be holy. Those are awesome statements. See, we've been going at it the wrong way. We've been emphasizing, be holy so that you can love God and that He can love you. No, the Bible says, let God's love become a reality to you. Receive it and you'll live holy. That's the point that he's making. In verse 5, it says, But whosoever keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Now this is important. You've got to remember he was writing to people that had a Jewish mindset 
they were struggling. They had been brought up under a system that says, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And if you do these things, then God will accept you, love you, respond to you proportional to your performance. That's the mindset that they had. It's the exact mindset that we live with today. Religion, and I was talking to a man before the service, it's not only religion. I, I deal mainly with religion. But you can learn this same principle of law with, and being a total pagan. Because, I mean, the, the whole world system gives you what you deserve. People love you. When you scratch their back, they'll scratch yours. When you do something wrong to them, they reject you. We learn from a little tiny age. You come home saying A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Now I've said my ABCs. Tell me what you think of me. And they say, oh, you're wonderful. We're so proud of you. And then when you're messing your pants, they give you a whipping. We learn response according to performance. From the time that we're just little tiny, everything is based on performance. So it doesn't have to be religion. You can learn acceptance based on performance without religion. But religion has made it to where it, before it was a fence. Now with religion, it's a castle, a fortification that just makes these things so strong in our life, it's hard to overcome. And, you know, in the natural, there's a truth to that. I've taught my kids, you know, that God loves them unconditionally, that I love them unconditionally, but I do have to deal with them on performance because they aren't just a spirit. I have employees. I had one employee that I fired, and this employee is my best friend. And he came to me, how could you do this? Thought we were friends. And I said, hey, I love you. I'll do anything for you. But if you're going to work in this ministry, I've got a responsibility to be a steward of God. And I said, you are causing trouble in this ministry, and it's not going to work with you here. And I said, I love you. It has nothing to do with my relationship with you, but I am not going to put you in a position of authority if you don't change your attitude. And I said, you aren't changing in the next year or two. I can't wait. Bye. I had to deal with him based on performance. There are some things that you have to deal with based on performance. Everything can't be by grace. Your employer is not going to hire you by grace. He is not going to tell you that, hey, I love you by you know, God's unconditional love. And so whether you ever show up for work or not, you got a job, you got a guaranteed cost of living raise, I want you to know that you can't do anything. You're eternally secure. Doesn't work that way. Some things come by performance. So see, these people had a performance mentality. That's where nearly all of us are. I, I can just say all of us. That's where every person in here is coming from a performance mentality. You don't learn about grace uh, instinctively. There is no role model for grace. There is no role model for it. Nobody treats you by grace. Nobody gives you mercy unless they've got the love of God in their heart. There is nothing in nature that teaches you by grace. The only role model for grace is God, and you've got to go to God's Word. And the simple fact, most of us have been educated much more by the world than we have by God's Word. And then religion, like I said, has perverted the love of God so that most of us don't even see God's love as an unconditional uh, free thing. We see it as something to be earned and obtained, which is incorrect according to the Scripture. So most of us have no role model for God's kind of love. So this is what he's saying right here to this Jewish mind that was performance-based. He says, I'm not writing a new commandment unto you. Here he was telling them about love. He had, I gave some of the background on this last night. In the first chapter, he's saying, I'm, I'm wanting you to come into relationship with the Lord. If you come into this relationship and if you abide in Him and walk in the light as He is in the light, you will not commit sin. 
It's an awesome statement. It was so radical to their mind. They said, no, the only thing that will make a person quit sinning is fear of punishment, judgment, wrath, condemnation, hellfire and damnation is the way to turn people from sin. It's exactly the way most people think today. He was saying radical stuff to them. And so as a result, right in the middle of talking about all this love, he says, am I writing a new commandment unto you? This isn't a new commandment. This is the same commandment you've heard before. But then look at the next verse. Again, a new commandment I write unto you. (laughs) Sounds contradictory, doesn't it? He says, I'm not writing a new commandment unto you. This is the same thing you've heard from the beginning. And then in verse 8, again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. What's he saying? This sounds like a contradiction. He says, I'm not writing a new commandment, but then I am writing a new commandment. You know what he's saying is, he says, the results are the same. He says, you should love your neighbor as yourself. You should not commit adultery. You should not steal. You should not lie. You should not bear false witness. You should not do all of these things. But see, the Old Testament, people had misunderstood. Man, I've got a three-tape series. I've got a three-tape series on everything. (laughs) And I'm going to have to unplug right here or I'll get off the track and talk about something else. But please get this three-tape series on the nature of God. It'll explain some things about the harshness and the judgment and the, and the um, conditional love of the Old Testament and compare it with the unconditional love of the New Testament and harmonize the two. Most people don't even see a difference between the two, and yet they're radically different. You cannot adhere to the Old Testament law and walk in the New Testament grace at the same time. They are opposed one to another. Man. How do you go on beyond this? Most people didn't swallow that, and so... But anyway, you just have to get the tape series. I had not got time to explain that. The Old Testament law, people thought that God gave me these steps, 1 through 10,000, showed me all of the things that I must do to get right with God. Thank you, God, for showing me how I've got to be holy and do all of these things to measure up to you. No, that's not what God gave the law for. God gave the law to show you how vile and how sorry you were so that you'd despair of ever trying to be good enough. That you'd recognize and see, some people were thinking, well, I don't dip or cuss or chew or go with those that do, praise God. I'm better than this old publican over here. I fast twice in a week. I pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin, praise God. The Lord's really blessed to have me on his side. (laughs) They were comparing themselves among themselves. And so because of that, some people, because of this comparison, were thinking... I'm a pretty good guy. God's certainly going to accept me. And even though you're better than I am, who wants to be the best sinner that ever went to hell? Praise God. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. Nobody can trust in themselves. So how did God break this self-deception, this self-righteousness? He gave such a standard of perfection and holiness, thou shalt not, and all of these things that nobody could ever keep them. The purpose of the law wasn't so that you could keep it, The purpose of the law is to show you God's true standard of perfection and holiness was so infinitely greater than any person could ever live up to that it would make you despair of self-salvation and you'd just say, oh God, if that's what you demand, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's what the law was given to do. Galatians chapter 3 says it was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ so that we could be justified by faith. And after you come to the Lord under faith, you don't need this schoolmaster anymore. The law isn't made for a righteous man is what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It's made for an unrighteous man. The law is not created for you. See, we've misunderstood the law. Well, I wish I had time to go into all that. 
Some of you think, well, the law are just the Ten Commandments. Well, the Lord, when He was asked what was the greatest commandments of the Old Testament law, He quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. He quoted those as being parts of the law, which is loving God, number one, and loving your fellow man. There were commandments that were outside the Ten Commandments of Exodus chapter 20. For instance, did you know if you had a mole on your body, you were defiled? Leviticus chapter 21. If you got a mole anywhere on your body, you're defiled. You know, if you got a broken bone, you have been defiled. If you got a flat nose or a crooked nose, you're defiled. If you're stoop-shouldered or you have no arch in your feet, if you're flat-footed, you're defiled. Some of you are saying, Brother, I can't believe this. <laughs> you know why God gave those kind of commands? Does He want you to burn the moles off your body and try and get holy? No, but God is trying to wake you up and say, Hey, you can't make it on your goodness. You need a Savior. And so how did He do it? He gave you such a standard that surely I hit somebody in here. You know, if you got bad eyesight, if you're wearing glasses, you're defiled. I <laughs> took them off, huh? <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> Why did God do this? So everybody will have to go around batting their eyes and not wear glasses trying to pre present themselves as sin straight? No, God did it just for those of you that were trusting in yourself to show you that, hey, you're already defiled. You've already blown it. It doesn't matter how good you are. You can't be perfect. Adam didn't have moles. He wasn't flat-footed. He didn't have stooped shoulders. His eyesight wasn't bad. And God doesn't accept anything less than perfection. God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't just take the best in the class. I mean, he's got a quota to meet. Somebody's got to get in. So even though you don't pass, if you're in the top 10%, you get by. No, that's not the way it works. God was showing you he's so holy that you'll never make it on your own. Quit trusting in yourself and just call out for mercy. He did that so that anybody can be saved. Anybody who will humble themselves and put faith in his Savior can be saved. It was actually the mercy of God. God was hurting you, driving you towards grace with this law shutting you up so that you had no way of trusting in yourself. That was the purpose of the Old Testament law. But the New Testament actually will produce the same results as the Old Testament law. It also, see, the New Testament love will cause you to walk in love towards your neighbor. And you know, if you love your neighbor, you will not lie to them. If you love your neighbor, you will not steal from them. If you love your neighbor, you would never commit adultery and hurt somebody else. If you love your neighbor, you would be kind and all of the other things, every precept of the law would be fulfilled. So this is what he's talking about. He says, I'm not writing a new commandment. It's really the same commandment, but it's just a different way of obtaining it. The Old Testament law presented it as you do this and this and this to be right with me. It was motivated out of fear of punishment. In the New Testament, we're motivated out of love. God's love is what compels us to live holy. But brothers and sisters, and I don't, I'm not again saying this as a criticism against anybody. I'm saying it as an indictment against the state of the church today. At least nine out of every ten Christians is still motivated by fear of punishment. The reason you come to church is because if you don't come to church, God is not going to accept you. And you've got to come here because you need prayers answered every once in a while. And you've got to get God on your good side. Most people come out of debt, paying their debt and their obligation to the Lord. Most people give out of debt 
Boy, you can take Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 and 10 and preach it. Man, if you don't give your cursed with the curse, the wrath of God's coming on you, and you can get people to shuck out into those buckets when they come by. You can get people to give. And yet the Bible clearly states in uh, Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed me from the curse of the law. Now, tithing is not Old Testament. Tithing is Bible. It was in effect before the law came into effect in Genesis chapter 14. But the curse of Malachi chapter 3 that was placed upon tithing is Old Testament law, and that is not the New Testament motivation for giving. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, it says, Let every man give, not, as, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know what giving grudgingly of necessity is? It's like giving under a curse if you don't tithe. Amen. Somebody says, well, you're giving a new commandment. No, I believe in tithing. I just believe in tithing for a different reason. Not under fear of punishment and curse. God's not going to get me and rub me out if I don't tithe. The church that I was brought up in, my pastor, it was a wild Baptist church, wild. And the pastor used to get so excited, he'd jump up on this part of the pulpit. And he'd reach over and grab the mic, and I mean sweat would pour out his shoes. He'd lose five to ten pounds every time, running up and down the aisles and screaming and yelling. It was wild. Our services go to one or two o'clock in the morning. We were a wild group. And he'd get up there and say, if you don't pay your tithes, God will take it out in doctor bills. Which what he was saying is, if you don't give them, God will put you in the hospital and take the money from you. It's going to get it one way or the other. You can either give it and get the blessing of it, or he'll take it from you. And man, people would shell out the money. <laughs> but you know what the Scripture says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? It says, if I give my goods to feed the poor, verse 3, or give my body to be burned and don't do it motivated by God's kind of love, it profits me nothing. You know, if I was to take a poll in here, I can guarantee you that the vast majority of people in here have paid their tithes or have it... Well, let me rephrase that. That's not true. About 10% of Christians tithe. But the vast majority of you have given in offerings. And if you received a hundredfold return off of your giving, you would be a millionaire by now. I can guarantee you I'd be a billionaire off of my tithing if I had every penny back that I'd ever given with interest. But it says that if you don't do it motivated by God's kind of love, it profits you nothing. You know what that means? You don't get a return. You have wasted your money. Now, whoever you gave it to may have benefited, but you aren't going to receive the return. The vast majority of Christians have not even come close to receiving the hundredfold return promised to them because their motive was giving out of debt, giving to buy God off. God, see, I gave. Now you got to give to me. It won't work that way. You are not going to receive a return. If you give it motivated by anything other than God's kind of love, it profits you nothing. Most of you, your tithing, your giving is gone because of the motive. The way we've been taught has sparked a wrong motive. Most of us are conditioned to do things out of fear. If I don't do it, God won't bless me. If I don't do it, God won't minister to me. And that's wrong. The reason I give isn't so because that God is going to curse me if, if I don't. I love God so much, I've made a decision a long time ago that everything I've got's God's. He can tap me anytime, and I'll give Him anything, everything, house, car, anything. It's all His, but He gives me wisdom to keep it and use some of it. I believe that I'm supposed to provide for my family, but man, I'll give the Lord anything. And the Lord has given me wisdom not to eat all of my seed, to plant some of it. 
And so I give. I give motivated, number one, by love, but I also give out of wisdom, knowing that if I eat every bit of seed I get, I'm not going to have a crop one of these days. So it's wisdom to give. And I give because it's a way of expressing love. It's a way of expressing faith. How do you walk in faith in the area of finances? Fear says, man, get all you can and can all you get. Amen? <laughs> Keep all for yourself. If you need money, don't give any away. That's stupid. Faith says, man, there is a God that is my source. And faith says, I'm going to give because that's what God says to do. And I believe. You know, a person that doesn't give is a person that doesn't have faith. So anyway, there's reasons to give, but it's not motivated out of fear and things like that. See, the Old Testament law motivated people towards the end result through fear. The New Testament motivates you still towards the same things, but now it's a totally different motivation. You do it motivated out of love. And that scripture we used over in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18 says, Fear has torment. He that fears is not made perfect in love. Most of you are tormented in your relationship with God. You feel that if I don't do this, God won't bless me. And then when you blow it, you feel like, oh God, how could you ever use me? You're tormenting yourself. It's not even the devil that's tormenting you. It's your own religious thinking that's tormenting you because you're motivated. You think that God is dealing with you proportional to your performance. See, this is what he's talking about when he says, I'm not writing a new commandment, and yet I am writing a new commandment. It's new in the sense that now... You aren't doing it to obtain. You're doing it because you have already obtained. It's a brand new motivation. Now you live wholly as a result, not to get a result from the Lord. The Lord said this over in John chapter 13, verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Was that really new? No, because in the 22nd chapter of Matthew, when Jesus was asked by the lawyer, he says, Master, what is the great commandment of the law? He quoted Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might, with all thy strength. There is no other commandment greater than this. And the second commandment is like unto it. Leviticus 19, 18. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus went back and extracted. The Old Testament law had love in it. So what was Jesus saying when he says, A new commandment I give unto you? He was giving it meaning, understanding in a way that the Old, pe Old Testament people had never understood it. Man, to, to love your neighbor as yourself, nobody in their wildest imagination would have understood that that meant to come and literally die on the cross for somebody else. Jesus gave a depth of understanding to love that nobody else ever had. Brothers and sisters, love is the really distinguishing characteristic between true Christianity and the sad thing is that most of religion today is not true Christianity. It's performance-oriented. It's based on rejection. If you don't do this, I won't do this, and that is not the way that God is. You know, there's a good friend of mine, a woman that had a television program. As a matter of fact, the reason I'm on the radio in the Chicagoland area is because I was on her television program two days, and I got a thousand requests off of her television program in two days. And so that opened up as going on radio here. And anyway, this, it's a tremendous lady. She's no longer on television. But when I got to know her and heard her testimony, it was tremendous because she was eight years old when her mother died. Her dad could not handle the loss of his wife, and he got to drinking, and it finally got so bad he lost all of his money and everything, and he couldn't keep his girls. And so I think she had two sisters, and, and uh, they all went to an orphanage. And when he took them to the or orphanage, 
He says, this is just temporary. I'll be back to visit you every Saturday, and I'm going to come get you. And so this woman, on the first Saturday, dressed all up in her best dress and waited all day long for her dad to come see her, and he never came. And she did that from the time she was eight until she graduated from high school. Every Saturday, waiting on her dad, he never came to see her. Never came. She never got to see her other sister. She started experiencing all this rejection. But instead of just falling apart, she began to perform. She, she learned that that's the way people accept you, is based on performance. They don't, when, you know, when people came to get the girls at the orphanage, they didn't take the one that needed them the most. They took the one that they thought would benefit the parents the most. They got the best-looking one, the happiest-looking one, the healthiest-looking one. So she learned to put on a front and to act and act like everything was okay. Sound familiar? To be honest, that's where most of us are. So she became an actor, and as a result, she became, she's a beautiful woman. She became the sweetheart of the high school. She became most likely to succeed, most popular. She learned to perform, but inside it was all a front, and she just was terrified that if anybody ever really got to know her, that she'd be rejected. And then came along this man and married her, and uh, he's, a, he's a great guy. He's a friend of mine, too. And they got married but she was just convinced that someday he was going to really see the real her and that she wouldn't be able to last. He thought if she ever, he ever saw what she's really like, he'd divorce her. So this woman got up at like 3.30, 4 o'clock every morning after they were married so that she could be totally made up, had on a brand new face, had her hair fixed, everything was perfect. He, she never let her husband see her without being picture perfect for like six months or something after they were married. She didn't know how to cook, and she took cooking classes and tried to cook all of these things, and her husband later told me he nearly choked on it a number of times. <laughs> but she tried to do everything just perfect. She was trying to be Miss Perfect, and the pressure was building on her and building on her, and finally something happened. I forget what it was. And they got into an argument, and she just wasn't able to control it. She lost control, got to screaming and yelling and blasted him let him have it, started crying. All of her mascara ran down her face. She says that when she cries, her nose gets all red and big. And anyway, she was just miserable, and the cover was blown. And so after this argument, she says, Okay, divorce me. Just, I don't care. Do whatever. And he started laughing. She says, What's the matter? And he says, Why would I divorce you? She says, Well, now you know what I'm like. He says, I love you. It doesn't matter what you're like. I love you the way you are. And you know, that woman had never understood somebody loving her independent of her performance. And she couldn't believe it. She was convinced for months that he was going to divorce her at any moment. And her husband began to start retraining her and start giving her an unconditional type of love. You know why most people's are mountaintop and valley type of experience? They even develop doctrines to try and make you think that that's the way God intended it to be. God will just give you a brief time on the mountain because it's in the valley where all the growth takes place. So God wants you to go down into the valley and God wants you to go through these hard times and everybody's life, a little rain must fall. We sang that last night, didn't we? Didn't mean that as a criticism, but anyway... We have these doctrines that teach that God puts you through hard times. Wrong, 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 wrong. That is not true. 
God doesn't deal with you based on performance. The reason that happens is because we go through these cycles of thinking, hey, I'm pretty good. And when you're pleased with yourself, you let God love you. And so you experience the pleasure of the Lord, and you experience the joy of the Lord, and you get to feeling like God loves me. And man, that's exciting, and you go to having a good time, and you're up here on this mountaintop. But you know what? You don't go very long without doing something stupid. You don't go very long without sinning or getting mad or somebody pulls in front of you and you honk the horn. And then after the devil gets you all riled up and you lose your temper, then the same devil that came around and made you mad will come and say, you sorry thing, how could you have done this? And he'll begin to condemn you. And because of the way we think that God deals with us based on performance, we go back down into the valley and we have to go through penance. I actually met a man one time that crawled three miles over broken glass to do penance and kiss a statue so that he could be forgiven. We think about, oh, I can't believe people do that. Well, we do the same thing. It's just different. But we couldn't believe that God's going to heal me until I do penance. I'm going to pray and fast a whole week, and then I know God you'll move in my life. You know what that is? It's the same mentality. It's just a different form of uh, penance. And so we have to go through something to purge ourselves. And during that time, we're down here in the valley feeling like, oh, how could God love me? You're having a pity party, wallowing in your own grief. And then after a while, you get to thinking, even God, even, even strict, harsh God would have mercy on me sooner or later. And so you get, begin to kind of start hoping that maybe He's going to forgive me. Maybe I've done enough. And you start approaching the Lord and start opening up your heart. And man, God will tell you that He loves you. And so here you go right back up on the mountaintop <laughs> until you blow it the next time. And then you'll go through the whole thing. Not because God willed it, but because you tie God's love and acceptance to your performance. And your performance is like this. That's the reason your experience goes that way. The Bible says when Jesus comes that the valleys will be exalted, the mountains and the hills are made low. If you bring up the valleys and lower the mountains, guess what? That means it's smooth sailing. It should be a continual increase like this. You don't have to go up and down. The reason, if your life, if your experience with the Lord is up and down, it's because you have tied it to your performance. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not fluctuate in His attitude towards you. He doesn't change in the way He feels about you based on your performance. If He did, you'd have been gone a long time ago. If God was going to draw a standard, His standard would be so much higher than what you could ever live up to. I guarantee you, you'd have been ashes a long time ago. Brothers and sisters, God is a God of love, and we have totally missed it. We've totally misunderstood the nature and the character of God. Look over in Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Paul is giving instructions to Timothy, the pa- I mean, not Timothy, but um, Titus, the pastor of the church at Crete. And he's telling him some things to do in the church in verse 1. Titus chapter 2, verse 1, he says, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged man be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, and charity and patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as become of holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the Word of God be not blasphemed. You know, this is just kind of utility scriptures to most people. They look at this and they don't make much application to themselves and they certainly don't think it has much of a bearing on themselves. But there are some radical statements in here, many of them, 
I want you to focus on this one in verse 4 where it says that the older women are supposed to teach the younger women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children. You know, most people today do not believe that love is something that you can choose. It's just something that comes upon you. It strikes you like a seizure and you either have it or you don't have it. Hollywood has presented love as just you're walking along and all of a sudden you see Miss Perfect and you just fall in love. And then you fall out of love just as quick and you can't control it. All of us have seen these shows where somebody really loved their wife, but then here comes, you know, this bombshell walking through the office and all of a sudden they just feel something and they try and resist it. They try and stand against it and they just can't help it and they give in and then they have to go back and tell their wife, I'm sorry, it's just over. I've lost it for you. And they don't want it, but, you know, you can't control it. Most people look at love as kind of like a mirage. It's out there and you can see it from a distance, but you can't walk up and put a handle on it. You can't grab hold of the thing. It just comes and goes and you have no control. It controls you. That's the way that most of us have thought about love and that is not love at all. That's lust. It's emotion. Most of us, what we call love, it doesn't even remotely resemble it. The Lord here commanded the older women to teach the younger women to love their husbands and to love their children. The Lord would have been unjust to command us to do something that we can't do. The very fact that He can command you to teach people to love means that love is a decision. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It can affect your feelings and emotions, but it but your emotions are not a great indicator of love. I guarantee you, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, He didn't have a rush of goosebumps <laughs> thinking about you. Jesus hung there because He chose to love the world. He did it because it's something He wanted to do. I guarantee you, He was not feeling joy and peace and things like this. Love is not a feeling. You, sometimes when you're operating in the greatest love, you may be going totally contrary to your feelings. Man, it is immature. It is childish for a person to say, well, I just don't feel anything for you anymore. That means that all you've ever operated in is lust. God's kind of love is not a feeling. It's a choice. It's a decision. You can choose to love people. And the reason I'm saying this is because if that's the way that God commanded us to be, and I've got tapes on that. I've got tapes on marriage that will talk about all of this. If God commands us to walk in love with other people that way, don't you think that God will at least live up to His own standard? Do you think God would expect us to perform and operate in a higher degree of love than what He operates in? No way. It's impossible. God is love. If God told us to teach, to just choose to love people, then guess what? God chose to love you. God doesn't fall in love and fall out of love. God didn't set His love upon you because you were lovely. The 16th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, if you want to take time to read it, presents a picture of what God saw you like before you were born again. And He likens you unto a child that was born, cast out, wallowing in the mud, still polluted in your mother's blood. Your navel cord wasn't cut. You were filthy. You were defiled. And in the midst of that, God came along and just took you to be His own and loved you, not because you were lovely. The New Testament says it this way, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God commended His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
It says over in 1 John chapter 4, it says, In this was manifested the love of God towards us. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation. That means a payment, a sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for us. God loved you independent of your actions. And you know that's why it was so easy to be born again? Some people struggle with healing. You know why you struggle with healing more than being born again? It's not because healing is harder than being born again. If you were to put healing and being born again on a scale, being born again would be off the scale as far as degree of difficulty and impossibility. Because, I mean, before you were born again, you were a child of the devil by nature. You had never done anything righteous or holy. You didn't have any good credit to your works. You had nothing going for you. If the devil was ever going to stop you from doing anything, he should have stopped you from being born again. And yet he couldn't do a thing. The moment you, You know why you were able to be born again? Because it was presented to you that God commended his love towards you and that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And so the devil couldn't condemn you. If he came to you and said, you sorry thing, God won't save you, you'd already heard the good news that God loves sinners. It says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I'm a whosoever. You're a whosoever. All of us qualify. It says Christ came to uh, die for the ungodly. If you're ungodly, you qualify. Amen. How could the devil convince you otherwise? If you truly heard the gospel, all the devil pointing your sins out would do is make you run that much harder towards the Lord and say, man, that's the reason I need to come to the Lord is because He loves me and I want to receive this salvation. But you know what? After people get born again, they change their thinking. They think, I was born again by grace. I didn't have a thing to offer God. But now that I'm born again, I've got to be holy. I've got to be right. I've got to do this, this, and this. And if I'm not, God won't move in my life. That's not true and that's not right. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. That means the same way you got saved is the same way you should continue to receive from the Lord. You got saved totally by grace. It wasn't based on your performance. How much had you been paying your tithes and going to church and being holy and reading the Bible and praying an hour a day before you got born again? Most of you were living in adultery and dope and drugs and no telling what else she's doing. And yet God saved you and you were able to receive the greatest miracle that ever was. But now that you're born again, just don't read your Bible one day and God's liable to let you die of cancer because you didn't read your Bible. Can you see that there's something that is not equal here? Get born again while you're living in adultery, but just don't read your Bible one day and God's liable to let you die of cancer because you didn't read your Bible, you sorry worm. That scripture I've quoted a couple of times, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it says, God commended His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's a true statement. But you know, that's nearly always taken out of context. The point of what he's trying to say, he's drawing a comparison. He's saying, if God commended His love towards you and that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you, verse 9 is the point he's getting to, much more now being justified by faith, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Verse 10 says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled unto God by the death of His Son, much more now being reconciled we shall be saved from wrath through Him. The point that he's making is that if you could accept God's love when you were a sinner, much more now that you're a saint does God love you. And yet most Christians believe it's much less. 
I got saved by grace. I've even heard people say before that there's a honeymoon period. You get saved by grace. God will give you grace for a brief period of time. But boy, then you're going to have to grow up and you're going to have to straighten up. And if you don't start living right, man, God's not going to move in your life. And they put people back under performance. God dealing with you based on performance. That's the reason people tend to come off the honeymoon is because they get back into legalism and into grace and they get away from joy. The reason somebody had so much joy when you were first born again is because somebody told you that Jesus will forgive all of your sins. You can be forgiven. And it's just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's my little definition. And so, man, you think sin's the only thing that ever separated me from God. Now it's just as if I'd never sinned. I'm justified. And so you had joy and peace. But then, because you've lived for 20, 30 years every Monday morning, waking up and saying, oh, blue Monday and I hate Monday and you're conditioned to being depressed on Monday, you got a new heart, not a new brain. And so you get up on Monday morning and your brain starts thinking the way that it always has. And before you know it, by noon, you're depressed again. And you say, hey, I thought I saved. I thought God loved me. What happened to the joy? All of a sudden you wake up and you, you go back to the very person that led you to the Lord and said, I thought I was forgiven and I had such joy yesterday. What happened? I'm miserable today. I just don't feel like God's around. says, sin. <laughs> you say, but I, I confess my sin and God forgive me. You must have committed another sin since yesterday. Now, you aren't going to go to hell for this sin, but you just won't have any joy or peace. And we put people right back under sin. That's not true. The point is, if when you were enemies, you were reconciled unto God by the death of His Son, much more now that you've been reconciled, does God love you? If a drunk came in here, most of you would minister grace to a drunk and tell him, Brother, God loves you. God's got something better for you. You don't have to be drunk. You can drink new wine. God wants to forgive you. And this old drunk says, oh, God wouldn't forgive me. And you say, oh, yeah, God loved you. God commended his love towards you. And why yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And he says, really? He loves me. And you start telling him about love. And you know what love will do? It'll make him get born again. But then let him come back next week drunk again. And the very person that told him that God loves you, God loves you. It despite what you've done. Let them be born again. And that same person will come up and say, You sorry thing, you're a Christian now. You better straighten up or the wrath of God will fall on you. God's going to get you. God will burn your barley fields. There's a message. There's a famous message on burning your barley fields. And we wonder why people get saved but then stuck. It's because the thing that empowered them was the love of God. And the love of God caused them to have joy and peace. And sure, they were making mistakes along the way. I tell you, it's hard to refrain yourself from ministering law. When I pastored this little church in Childress, Texas, we led a couple to the Lord that had lived in a nudist colony for three years right before they came. We met them in the park, and they got born again. And so they came into our fellowship. We had we sat in a semicircle. There's only like 50 or 60 of us. We sat in a semicircle in this big room that I had. And this woman, she'd just come from a nudist colony and she didn't have, she'd never owned a dress in her life. And so what she wore were short shorts and a halter top that left very little to be imagined. Amen. And she came to this church service, every service, and sat there like that. And uh, some of the religious people that were in our church had a little problem with it. And they came and talked to me, and I told them, I said, Look, 
I'm not pleased with the way this lady's dressed either. She's not modest, but I said we didn't tell her she had to put on a dress and cover herself up to get saved. And I'm not going to tell her that she has to cover herself up to come to church. If God accepted her and she got born again that way, I'm going to love this lady. And I said, you just watch. God will speak to her. God will touch her heart. And for a few weeks, it was hard on some people. It was hard on me. There's a few times that I wanted to just throw a towel over her or something. <laughs> but you know what? One day she was in a Bible study. My wife was conducting this Bible study and she was talking to the ladies and she says, you know, I've never owned a dress in all of my life. And she says, would y'all pray with me that God would give us enough money to get a dress? Boy, by afternoon, she must have had 20 dresses. <laughs> <laughs> And they were all long dresses, down to the floor, and up to the neck. <laughs> but you know what? She never heard from us, said, hey, now that you're a Christian, you, you better start straightening up or God won't bless you. She didn't hear that before she got born again. I wasn't about to tell her that God loved her less that she, now that she was born again. It's hard on religion. It's hard because we want to clean people up so that this church will look respectable. But you know what? God sees different than people do. God sees your heart. And I can guarantee you there's some people in here that are straight as a gun barrel and twice as empty. There's some people in here that, man, you wouldn't dare do some of these things, but you're just so full of bitterness and resentment and fear and emptiness that you aren't pleasing God. Faith is a thing that pleases God. There's some people in here that their lives may be out of control and yet they're walking in all of the faith that they've got. Man, they're walking in the revelation that they've got and God is more pleased with them than He is you. Sister Righteous, Mr. Holy. See, God chooses to love us. God's love is not based on your performance. It's unconditional. You didn't do anything to occasion God's love. Some of us think that God loved us because we were worth loving. The Lord died for you 2,000 years before you existed. And it wasn't because you did something good. He's already forgiven your sins. He forgave your sins in advance. He didn't just forgive your sins up until the point that you got saved. And then if you commit another sin after you get saved, boy, you're in big trouble. And you've got to make sure you get it confessed. The Lord forgave all of your sins, past, present, and future tense sins. And I know some of you choke on that and say, Brother, how could you say that? Because the Bible says that. Romans chapter 5, verse 4, it says, oh, well, not verse 4, it's about verse 6 or 7. It's quoting from Psalms chapter 32, quoting David, and it says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Not did not, not does not, but will not. It also says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, it says, Through the offering of Jesus, through that one will, we have been sanctified once and for all. And verse 14 says, Those who have been sanctified have been perfected forever. What does that mean? Not talking about your physical body because your physical body is corruptible and it must put on incorruption. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's not talking about your brain because 1 Corinthians 13 says, Now we only know in part, but when that which is perfect is come, talking about our glorified body, then we'll receive a new soul that will know all things, even as also we are known. But your spirit is now perfect. And, for, and Hebrews chapter 12, I believe it's verse 23 
verifies that because it says that we have come to the church and general assembly of the firstborn to the spirits of just men made perfect. It's your spirit that has been sanctified and perfected forever. The moment you believed, your spirit was sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 1.13. Sealed. And no impurities get into your spirit. God is a spirit. John 4.24. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit. He deals with you on the basis of who you are in the spirit, not who you are in the flesh. And because of that, God can be holy and righteous to deal with you in love and deal with you in mercy and, and move in your life positively even though you've got sin in your life because God is a spirit. He's looking at your born-again spirit that has been sanctified and perfected forever. God deals with you on the basis of who you are in the spirit. You deal with you on the basis of who you are in the flesh. You're looking in the mirror and you dislike what you see. God's looking in the Spirit, and He sees you, the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. He sees you righteous, holy, and pure. Ephesians 4, 24. Put on the new man, which is created in righteousness and true holiness. You're righteous and truly holy. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Jesus became sin for you so that you might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Your spirit is righteous. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Jesus is made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Jesus is my righteousness. That scripture that says all of our righteousness is as filthy rags is talking about your self-effort before you get born again. All of your works are filthy rags. You can't ever obtain right standing with God based on your own actions. But when you confess Jesus is your Lord, God imparts unto you. He imputes unto you His righteousness. You become the righteousness of God. Jesus is now made unto you righteousness. And for a Christian to say all of my righteousness is His filthy rags, either you have to be talking about your flesh, or if you're talking about your spirit, you'd be calling Jesus a filthy rag because Jesus is your righteousness. He's holy and pure. In your spirit, you're as pure and clean, as white as driven snow. There is no impurity, no inadequacy in you. God's love towards you is not based on your flesh, man. It's based on your born-again self. You're a new person. God's love is unconditional towards you. God does not fluctuate based on your performance. You fluctuate. You fluctuate in feeling worthy. And because in your mind you think that God's love is tied to your worthiness, therefore when you're unworthy... You don't experience and feel God's love, not because God quit giving it, but because you quit receiving it. You won't let Him love you. Psalms chapter 35, verse 27 says, Let all those who favor my righteous cause say continually, Let God be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of His servant. It says you have to say this. You have to let God be magnified, which has pleasure in the prosperity of His servant. God's will is to prosper all of us, but it doesn't happen automatically. We have to let Him do it. Most of us won't let God love us because of our stinking thinking. We got His love tied to performance. We got it tied to our worthiness. And because we know that we aren't worthy, our own conscience condemns us and keeps us from receiving the love of God. And you know, when Paul taught on this, the book of Romans, I've got a brand new four tape series on this one. <laughs> and when Paul taught in the book of Romans... Four different times he had to come up and say, What am I saying? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And his answer to that is, of course, God forbid. 
which is a strong, absolute negative in the Greek. It means, may it never be so. It's impossible. That's not what he's saying. But did you know that if, if somebody doesn't preach the love of God to you to the point that it makes you think, are you saying that sin doesn't matter? Then you haven't preached grace the way that Paul preached it. If nobody ever misunderstands you of thinking, well, are you saying that it doesn't matter if we live in sin? then you hadn't been preaching the gospel the way that Paul preached. That ought to be a logical question. And the answer to it is, of course, no, that's not what I'm saying. But notice how Paul argued for holiness. Man, I'm, I'm not turning to these scriptures because I've, I've gone so long. I'm trying to get through this in a hurry. You're just going to have to get the tape and write them down and look them up. But in Romans chapter 6, he says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? You therefore are buried in baptism unto death, but now you're alive. You know what his reasoning is? He didn't go back to the law and he says, How dare you say this? Don't you know that the law says that God's going to reject you, the wrath of God? He didn't reason from law, fear, punishment. What was his reasoning? It was union with Christ. Don't you understand that you've been redeemed from this? Don't you know that you are now dead unto sin, that your born-again person can not sin? If you would get a revelation of who you are, you'd find out that as you walk in the Spirit, you cannot live in sin. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. You cannot fulfill the lust of the flesh if you're walking in the Spirit. If a person receives love and understands who they are, it's impossible for you to sin meditating on who you are in Christ. Satan has to take your attention away from that and get you into the flesh and into your ability to defeat you. When you're standing in who you are in Christ, thinking about what God has done in your life, you'll just find out that holiness flows through you. So Paul reasoned for holiness based on our union with Christ. This is what I was explaining last night when it says that the Holy Spirit will convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. He doesn't come nail you over adultery. What he'll do is come say, hey, you're, you're walking away from this union with Christ. What about the Lord? What about the one who loved you and died for you? How can you walk away from him? How can you walk with someone else when he loves you so much? See, that's the way that the Holy Ghost deals with you. That's the New Testament mentality. Paul did the same thing in 1 Corinthians talking to a group of people who were drunkards. They had the Lord's Supper and they had brunk, drunken ball, brawls and actually got totally stoned at the Lord's Supper and turned it into drunken brawls. And the people were suing each other and there was strife and hatred they were having, speaking in tongues, just people doing all kinds of weird things out of order. The most carnal group Paul ever spoke to. And they were living in, uh, they had a man that was in incest. How did Paul deal with that group? Over in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, you know what he said? He says, don't you realize that he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit? How then can I take what belongs to Christ and join it unto a harlot? Don't you understand that when you have a relationship with a harlot, you become one flesh with her? You're one flesh with the Lord. How could you be one flesh with a harlot? Again, the reasoning is on who you are in Christ. It's admonition, it's positive, it's encouraging, it's love-oriented instead of fear-oriented. Straighten up or the wrath of God will come on you. We've been conditioned by fear because everybody understands fear. You can tell a lost man, if you don't pay your tithes, God's going to get you. A lost man will put 10% in. 
But you know what? You start preaching love. Hey, give because you love the Lord. Has God done anything for you? Give according to what God has done for you. And you know what? People will wind up giving everything. I've actually had to take money before and give it back to people. I had a man get born again in one of my meetings in Omaha, and he gave his entire month's paycheck, signed it over the night he got born again, put it in the offering. He was so thankful to be born again. And we had to call him up the next day and say, Hey, God does not want you to give your whole paycheck. You need to keep part of this. All he asked for was 10% and maybe offerings above that. We had to give him his money back. You know what? Love will cause a person to give everything. Fear will cause them to say, How much do I have to give? And that's it. But you know what? Not everybody's conditioned towards love. You know, in our ministry, we have 53% of our overall mailing list gives. 53%. And the other 47% don't give a thing. And the other 47% request more tapes than the people who do give. Nearly half the people are freeloaders because we give our tapes away. And I don't mind because I was in a situation once where I couldn't buy tapes. I understand that people go through a period of time where they need that. But I, I can say out of that 47%, probably at least half of those are just freeloaders. They're never going to give. They, they probably aren't getting anything out of it. I know that in prisons, I've had prisoners write in before and say, people are taking your tapes and they're getting them free and they're erasing them and recording music over it and they're selling your tapes for profit. They want me to start regulating it. I'm not going to do it because you know what? There may be five or six or a hundred people doing that, but there may be one or two that their life's getting changed through it. And it's worth it to me to, to reach those one or two that are getting their life changed. I know there's people that take advantage of us and misuse it. But you know what? The ones that have been touched and blessed by the ministry, we, our partners give like nobody else's partners I've ever seen. A few years back, I had 1,500 people I wrote and said, help, I need help. You know, 1,500 people gave me $53,000 in one week's time. That's pretty good results. That's a pretty good response. Very few ministers could claim that. I went to the 1,500 people who were the givers, the ones who had responded. I didn't go to the ones that don't give. But the ones who have been touched by love. Love will cause people to give more than fear. It just takes effort. It takes faith. And so it's easier to motivate people by fear. It really is. When a, when a minister stands up here and beats you and condemns you and says, man, if you don't give, God's wrath is coming on you. God won't bless you. You know why people do that? Because it works. If you'd quit giving to those kind of appeals and you'd give to the people like Jim sitting here just encouraging you. He didn't pressure you, just saying something good because he didn't pressure you. You know, if this is a typical group, what'll happen is because there's no pressure, you'll let it go until it gets to the last night or so and then he'll say, hey, we're just about to go under. We aren't going to make the budget. If you don't give, please give. And when he puts a little pressure, when he appeals a little harder, that's when the money will come in. That's typical. You know, if people would start giving according to the Scriptures, then what would happen is the people that use godly methods would be blessed out of their mind. And the people who use fear and condemnation to motivate people would die and shrivel up and have to go out of the ministry. Ultimately, you're like the electorate that votes people into office. 
If ministers are misusing their ability, guess what? It's because you have responded and said, it works, it works. I've had people write into me before. If I ever do make a financial need known, people say, well, why didn't you let us know? Man, I, I had a guy that gave $50,000 to an organization that is now defunct. And then he came to work for me and found out our financial situation. And he says, why didn't you let us know? says, I was your partner. And every time I got this money, I prayed and said, God, where do you want me to put it? And he said, my first person I thought of was you every time. But you never say anything about money. So I didn't send it to you. I sent it to this guy who was crying all the time. Because I didn't bellyache and cry, he didn't give. He wanted his money to give where it could count. The scripture says, give where you're fed. You don't eat at McDonald's and pay Wendy's. If you just give where you're fed. Do you know what? If you just gave where you fed, then the people that are feeding the body of Christ would be so prosperous they couldn't handle it. And the people who are manipulating and controlling, I can guarantee you they are not feeding the body of Christ. They're saying just enough word to make it look good to get their platform so that they can drain you of your money. And those people would dry up and they'd go out of business. Why'd I get off on this? I was talking about being motivated by fear. Most of us, man, you can get in and manipulate a crowd for fear because people know, and religious people are the most fearful, condemned, beat-down people of them all. We've been taught that that's the way God is. God's not like that. God says, give out of love, not grudgingly and of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And we need to discover the benefit of just God's kind of love. We need to understand that, hey, nothing I'm going to do is going to make God love me more, and nothing I do makes God love me less. Now, there's a lot that I can do to make me love God more, and there's a lot I can do to make me love God less. Holiness doesn't make God love me more, but it'll make me love... I mean, excuse me, holiness doesn't make God love me more, but it'll make me love God more. Holiness doesn't turn God's heart away from me, but a lack of holiness will turn my heart away from God. So yes, I need to live holy, but for what reason? To obtain God's love? No, but because I've got it and I want to I keep it. And I don't want anything to blind me and harden me towards the love of God. So therefore, I seek God. But I don't seek God to be accepted. I seek God because I am accepted. And I want to know more about it. And I want to totally renew my mind to it, and I don't want to be susceptible to all the lies and the things that are going around. I tell you, brothers and sisters, I gave you enough tonight to last for years. You could take this tape tonight and play this tape every month of your life for years and get something brand new out of it. If you didn't perceive that, I'm just telling you. You need to listen to it over and over and over because I've shared some things that most people never get straight their entire life. And because of it, they're tormented in their relationship with God. They don't enjoy the blessing of it because they're serving God out of fear instead of serving God out of love. God's kind of love is unconditional. It's a choice. It's not based on performance. That's good news. Amen? Praise God. Father, we thank you for the word tonight. Thank you for loving